0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life.
1: And we'll be reading from two different chapters in Exodus. So we'll start with uh, chapter 28. We'll read the first five verses, and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 29 and read two sections from there. So, um, starting with Exodus 28, if you could please rise for the reading of Scripture. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Exodus 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breast piece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil, and pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons, and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes, and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever, Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall put out at the base of the altar." and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, and its skin, and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Okay, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hint of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with, with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. We thank God for his holy word.
0: Before we get started, I'd like to spend some time in prayer. Um, This Sunday is special. It's it's designated as the the Sunday of uh, prayer for the persecuted church. So I'm going to spend some time focused on that. Uh, Lord, we are very, very mindful of the plight of our brothers and sisters in some other countries how um, they are hated and persecuted for their faith, how they have their property stolen or vandalized, how they uh, have threats of violence or actual violence committed against them, how some are thrown in prison, how some are even tortured and killed. Lord, we remember our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Yemen. Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, India, and many more. Lord, we pray first that they would know your comfort. They know your comfort despite hatred and discrimination and violence. Um, Lord, I, I pray especially for Palestinian Christians this morning who really have the worst of all worlds. They're hated by the Jews and the Muslims, and they're right in the thick of it. So we pray that you would comfort them, and they would know that they have something sure and lasting, that no violence or poverty can take away from them. Lord, we also pray for the persecuted saints that, uh, Lord, if it be according to your will, that you would protect them from harm. Protect them from harm. Let there be... um, just a fence around them that the enemy can't penetrate but lord we also acknowledge that sometimes this isn't your will we know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and many times the the very loved ones that these saints long to come to know the lord that happens actually through the death of christians and so lord we leave it in your hands but if it be according to your will we ask that you would protect our brothers and sisters from physical harm. We know that you do protect them from all eternal harm, and they will not see the second death. And we praise you for that fact, God. Lord, we also pray that you would teach them what to say so that when hardship comes, they would be able to speak confidently and declare your praises, to declare the gospel to their families and neighbors, even to government officials. Lord, we pray that their persecutors would actually hear the gospel and believe. We ask that they would find Christ and thus you would add to the number of your people exactly through the hatred that they've endured. And God, we we just pray that your church would continue to grow and to flourish in all of these hardest places despite the persecution. God, we also just ask this morning that you would cause us to learn from these brothers and sisters, that we would learn how fleeting this life is, that we would learn how precious our salvation is, how necessary your church is, how how amazing it is to have a Bible in our hands. Lord, teach us how sure your purposes are, that nothing, not danger or nakedness or sword or famine Nothing in in heaven or on earth or below the earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we praise you for that reality. And Lord, we ask now that you would meet us in these words. Help us to see what you want us to see in Exodus. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us so far in this book. And we ask that you would teach us still more as we near the end. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we talked about a big concept, tabernacle or temple. This week we're going to be equally ambitious because we're going to try to grasp the important concept of priesthood that's unpacked in a big way here in chapters 28 and 29. Now the concept of priest is as old as humanity itself, right, regardless of Whatever ancient culture you look at, you are going to see that they had a class of people whose job it was to serve as go-betweens, representing the divine to the people and the people to the divine. And we need to see the goodness of this and the need of this. It's good for us to focus on that because we've all seen in our lifetimes How wrongly the idea of priesthood can be used and abused, both in Catholicism and in Protestantism, often at the expense of the very weakest of us. And we can all agree instantly that this is not what priesthood is supposed to mean. But what is it supposed to be? What is it supposed to accomplish? But when we turn to the Bible, we see that priesthood was actually God's idea in the beginning and we don't have time to trace it today but there's evidence that even in the garden of eden adam was meant to serve a priestly function also last year in our hebrew series we saw the enigmatic priest melchizedek back in genesis 14 So these hints from priesthood are given from the very beginning, but here in Exodus 28 and 29, it's really unpacked more fully, and we'll get a good look at the Aaronic priesthood, which began as God commanded Moses to consecrate and ordain his brother Aaron as the first high priest of Israel, with Aaron's male descendants to serve as priests under him and after him. And what we'll see today is not just some strange clothing and strange rituals, we're going to see that God mercifully appoints priests in the image of the one true priest to bring an unholy people into the presence of a holy God. Priests bring an unholy people into the presence of the holy God. So are you an unholy person? By nature, yes, we all are. Do you want to be brought into the presence of a holy God? If you value life and beauty and goodness and joy that will last, then yes, yes you do. Which means that this text is important for all of us. Because it raises the question, who will be your go-between? God's goal for us and the goal for his priesthood in Exodus is recorded for us at the very end of our passage. uh, Chapter 29, verses 45 to 46 I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. So we've been talking about how he is the God who stays, right? That's what we've been saying in this whole series. He's the God who saves, the God who speaks, and the God who stays. He's forming a people who he's going to live among. He's going to meet with them. And this people will strive with him the same way that Jacob did. So he brought this people out of slavery, out of the land of idolatry. And he wants his presence to permeate every aspect of our lives and bring us into his glory. So let's see how the concept of priesthood accomplishes that. Here's our outline. We're going to see that priests represent God to the people. Secondly, priests represent the people to God. We're going to see that priests point to the priest, the one true priest. And then last, we will see that we are a priestly people. So first, we see in this passage that priests represent God to the people. Priests represent God to the people. So why is there a whole chapter here of, about the priest's clothing? Because this outfit shows something about God. It's full of meaning. So, you know, in every profession, you, there are uniforms, more or less. Um, and those uniforms have a purpose, right? If you have a uniform with, uh, that, that can hold weapons and um, like a radio, then you're probably a soldier or a policeman. If you have a uniform that's, you know, built for cleanliness and flexibility and comfort, uh, you, you might be a nurse with those, those colorful scrubs. Well, here in verse 2, we're told that this uniform is for beauty and for glory. For beauty and for glory. People need to see the beauty and the glory of the Lord. And we read about seven articles of clothing that Aaron is given. First, there's a breast piece. We'll read more about that later. There's an ephod. Now, that's like a tight-fitting poncho vest sort of thing. There's a robe. There's a coat of checker work. Um, There's a turban. And there's a sash, that's like a, a fancy wraparound cloth belt. And then for the seventh item, over in verse 42, we read about the underwear. If you want to hear your kids laugh, maybe just mention to them today that we talked about underwear in this sermon. So we've got a slide that shows more or less what this get-up would have looked like on the priest. Um, now this may not seem like the coolest outfit to you, but I assure you, in the ancient world... This would have blown their minds. It would have taken their breath away. Most people back then didn't have dyed cloth at all, and these were the richest colors. And these garments weren't just kind of clumsily stitched together, like, I don't know, if your mom sewed clothes for you. No, these were made by the most skilled artisans. Sorry, I'm sure your mom's a a lovely seamstress. Um, There were rare gems embedded in this costume. So there was gold. There were gold rings and cords. The effect on the ancient Israelites would have been even more shocking than when we look for beauty and glory at the red carpet of the Academy Awards or at a a royal coronation ceremony. So the idea is the people themselves couldn't enter into the holy place. But in the high priest's costume... They could see the same branding, so to speak, the same beauty and glory, the same gold and skilled ornamentation and rich colors that were present in the holy place itself. So it was like God's priest was an ambassador who brought with him the flavor of that homeland behind the holy veil, and he enabled these people to see. They'd never be able to go into the holy place for themselves, but they could get a taste of it through looking on the high priest. But beyond just understanding God's beauty and glory, the priest also helped to communicate God's holiness. As we see in chapter 29, the priest had to be purified through seven days of sacrifice. So they had to wash with water, not only before their ordination, but if you look over at chapter 30, verse 17, they used the bronze basin to regularly wash their hands and their feet, and it says, quote, "...so that they may not die." So the appearance of purity was a matter of life and death because God cared a lot about them displaying his holy nature to the people. In chapter 28 and verse 36 tell us that a plate of pure gold was fastened to the the priest's turban and it said, holy to the Lord. So all of this gave the people just this sense of otherliness and um, appropriate fear and awe of God. Now, we'll talk later about how pastors are and are not like Hebrew priests, but the 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said, What my people need most from me is my own personal holiness when we think about the sense of holiness that flowed from the priest's appearance and how the people needed to understand that holiness, they needed needed to see that, to understand something about God, it certainly raises the question for anyone who is in ministry today, can people see in me a representation of the character of God? So please, if if you think to pray for me or for the other pastors, please pray this for us, that we would be characterized by a deep and joyful holiness. We saw last week that there at the end of chapter 27, the priests were also responsible for maintaining the lampstand in the holy place and making sure that those flames kept burning. And we talked about how that represented the light of life that was going out from God to his people. Well, later in Scripture, this theme is developed into a priestly function of teaching to make sure that the light of God's word keeps burning for the people and for the whole world to see. So, for example, in um, the Psalms, it says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And in Leviticus 10, God explicitly tells Aaron, You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So there's that light going out from God to his people through these priests. And one last way in which the priests represented God to the people was by providing judgment in matters where the community needed to know the will of God. And you see this in chapter 28, verse 30. It says, And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the thuman, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So what this is describing is there's this pocket in the breast piece where these objects called Urim and Thuman were placed. Some think that Urim and Thuman could be translated the lights and the darks. And we see in some other passages that if the people needed God's decision about something for the community, like whether or not to go to war or some matter concerning national guilt, then they would consult the Urim and the Thuman. And we don't know if this is like a dice that you throw or like random objects that were pulled. uh, But you would, we don't know how it works. But you would use the Urim and the Thumin and then it would show either a yes or no answer from the Lord. So that sounds pretty sketchy to us, rightfully so. Um, But it was not random. We have to understand this. It was given by the Lord for that time. It was used prayerfully It was for a time when there were hardly any scriptures written down. It was a time before the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the people of God. And the last mention that we have of Urim and Thummim being used is in the time of David. But the high priest was given this role uh, to find the will of God for the community of faith when they faced decisions that impacted them all. So in all these ways, the priest represented God to the people. But a true go-between doesn't just represent one party, right? That's, that's not a mediator. That's just an advocate. Uh, a true go-between can represent both parties, and so it is with priests. Priests also represent the people to God. Priests represent the people to God. So we mentioned how the priests would tend the lamps in the holy place. Well, chapter 30, verse 7, says that every morning and evening, as Aaron tends the lamplight, he should also burn fragrant incense on the incense altar. And these two tasks are linked. And it's a striking picture of how the priest tends both to the light emanating out from God and also tends to the smoke of incense going up to God. Now, Revelation describes incense as representing the prayers of the saints— And other parts of Scripture associate it more generally with reverent worship of the people, just acknowledging the holiness of God. In uh, 1 Samuel 1, we get a glimpse with Eli and Hannah. I don't know if you remember that situation, but it's a glimpse of what it could look like for a priest to encourage and to strengthen the prayers of the tabernacle worshipers. So the priest tends to the incense going up to God and to the prayers that that incense represents. For more glimpses of the priest representing the people, let's go back to Aaron's clothing requirements. So chapter 28, starting in verse 9, says, "'You shall take two onyx stones "'and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone "'and the names of the remaining six on the other stone "'in the order of their birth. "'As a jeweler engraves signets, "'so shall you engrave the two stones "'with the names of the sons of Israel.'" You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings." So the names of the tribes of Israel, of course, that's shorthand for all the people of God. And isn't it beautiful that, that as the priest enters into the presence of God, he bears the weight of the people he represents on his shoulders. And then jumping down to verse 15, we read, "You shall, um... Make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And then the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Um, And then jumping down to verse 29, it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So the people needed to be on the priest's heart and to have their judgment borne by him because they were not holy. And so we have this ornate breast piece with these jewels that have the names of the the sons of Israel on them. And in Ezekiel, nine of these same gemstones are spoken of as representing the beauty of Eden and then in Revelation all 12 of these stones are listed as foundation stones of the new Jerusalem so what seems to be going on here is it's reminiscent of a paradise lost for the people of God but it's worn on the priest because he is their guide and he is their forerunner leading them back home back into the very presence of God And like we talked about last week, the path to get there had to involve not just bearing the stones on the shoulders and over the heart, but it had to involve atonement through the sacrifice of a substitute. And that's why the the biggest responsibility for the Aaronic priests was the job of sacrifice. So there at the end of chapter 29, starting in verse 38, it gives you just a taste of what all this entailed. There were regular daily burnt offerings, which involved killing lambs, partially butchering them, and then burning most of them on the altar. There were also drink offerings, grain offering components. If you flip over to Leviticus and look in the first few chapters there, you'll see instructions for a lot of different offerings that anyone could bring to the tabernacle at any time and ask the priests to offer for them. So... Burnt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings. It's really hard for us to imagine how bloody and smelly and sticky and exhausting a priest's work of mediation through sacrifice would be. And that's a good perspective for those of us in ministry now to remember so that we don't grow weary when the work is just a little too messy and hands-on for our liking. But all this bloody mess had to be endured and it had to be done accurately and thoroughly in order for the people to rightly be represented before God. It was a hard job, but you know, there is someone who knew that burden even more fully than Aaron and his sons. And our third idea is that priests point to the priest. Priests point to the quintessential, the ultimate, the one necessary priest, Jesus Christ. All of God's priests point to this one true priest. And before we talk about him, let's just notice the glaring limitation that the priests in the line of Aaron show in chapter 29. So Aaron and his sons, before they even get started, they need this ritual washing. And then they need sacrifices. Why? Because they themselves are sinners. So there's this bowl which is called the sin offering, and they, they put their hands on it to, to show a transmission of sin to this animal. And there's a, the first ram. This is called um, a burnt offering. It's like a, a... Sorry, the second ram is the burnt offering. It's a... No, the first ram. There's a bowl is the sin offering. Then the first ram is the burnt offering. And it's a way for them to say, like, God, we're really yours. We're all in. And then there's a second ram... And that's called the ram of ordination. Now, we don't have an altar here per se, but how would you like it if a couple weeks ago I'd just taken an animal's blood and kind of just like thrown it, thrown it all over here as part of our um, ordination of Brett? How would, how would that be? Would, would you enjoy that component of our ceremony? But see, see, here in the Old Covenant, there's this keen awareness that God's priests couldn't even be put on the job of of, um, dealing with the sin of others if their own sin wasn't atoned for first. And so blood from that second ram is then put on the priest's right ear and right thumb and right big toe. And the meaning there is that the life of another is needed if the priest is going to hear as he ought to hear, if he's going to work as he ought to work, if he's going to walk as he ought to walk. And verse 21 says, Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So we see that what a priest needs is the blood and the anointing. And then after all that is done, the priest is to eat the flesh of the ordination ram and the bread that's in the basket at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And this is all very important. We'll come back to it later. So these three sacrifices, the bull and the two rams, these sacrifices were to be repeated for seven days. Seven days of ordination. Could there be any more emphasis on the priest's own need for his sin to be covered by sacrificial blood? And don't miss this. It's a seven-day process. Why seven days? Because what these priests really need is to be a new creation. Before Aaron and his sons could serve as mediators, they themselves needed a mediator. And Moses kind of stood in for that with these sacrifices. But the true high priest that Aaron and that all of us needed would come in the person of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus represent God to the people? Yes. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He was the eternal word who came to tabernacle amongst us. His disciples asked, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So in his teaching, in his miracles, in his lifestyle, his followers beheld the beauty and the glory of the Lord. And his divinity was confirmed on the Mount of Transfiguration, also through his victory in the resurrection, also with his ascension to the very throne of heaven. And Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that whoever has seen me has seen the Father because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus shows us God better than any son of Aaron in majestic clothes ever could. But did Jesus represent the people to God? Of course, yes, he did. He was not unsympathetic to our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are but without sinning. And he, w- he willingly bore our names on his shoulders, over his heart, into the true holy place of which the tabernacle is, is just an earthly copy. And so the difference between Jesus and the priest in the line of Aaron is stark because first of all, Jesus had no need of a ritual cleansing before he took up his office as priest. John the Baptist said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus agreed with him, like, yeah, there's there's not a need, but I'm going to do this anyway to identify with sinners. And there were no sacrifices that needed to happen seven times before Jesus took up his office. Right away, the heavens opened, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus had no need to be anointed with blood and with symbolic oil because as the Messiah, literally the anointed one, he had the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and rest on him. He didn't need a plaque on his turban that said, holy to the Lord, because he was holy by his own merit. So in Jesus, finally, we have the mediator who needed no mediator for himself. And the book of Hebrews tells us the result that while every priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, when Christ had offered for, a single, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, not, not bulls, not rams, but of his own body, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, our atonement is finished praise god as as a as a minister. I don't have to kill animals and offer them. The atonement is finished, but that doesn't mean we don't still need the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus stayed inside the holy place. And he is still serving as priest today. He tends to his lampstands, the light and the word of his presence. And he tends to the incense, the prayers before the throne. Again, Hebrews tells us that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Revelation chapters 1 through 3 show Jesus actually tending to the lampstands or his presence among the churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Notice those priestly clothes. Now, we talked about how Aaron was not ultimately the priest that we needed. But if we're to really understand how Jesus is the go-between that we need, then it should also be said that I am not. I am not the go-between that you need. Neither is Victor, neither is Brett, or any other pastor or church leader in your life. In as much as I have any priestly function, it is a pointing function. I point to the priest. Now the term priest is nowhere used in the New Testament about an individual other than Jesus. When local church leaders are described, the term priest isn't used about them. Now, I'm aware that some Christian traditions do use the term priest, and I'm not saying that there's that they're not doing any good. I'm just saying I'm happy to belong to a tradition that uses the New Testament terms of pastor, elder, overseer. I think it's more straightforward. But it is also clear in the New Testament, that pastors are to function in a priestly way. We keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account to God, just as Aaron was accountable. And in Acts, it's modeled that the elders were to be devoted to the word and to prayer. So we represent God by making sure his light is always burning bright in the churches, and we represent the people by stirring up the incense of prayer and bearing their names in our own intercession for you week in and week out. Well, if I have a priestly function, why then, you might ask, don't I wear fancy robes or, or at least a collar, as is the case in some traditions? Like surely if Aaron had cool clothes to represent the holiness and beauty of God, I could swing something a little special, right? Well, that's a good question. And it's, it's certainly not a matter of right or wrong. Maybe some people are helped by having that visual aid of the beauty and the glory of God but there's also been a lot of abuse in church history whereby fancy clergy domineered over simple Christians who really didn't know that in Christ they really can approach God for themselves. So take my non-fancy clothes as my effort to make sure that I never drift into thinking that I somehow have a more exclusive inside track to God than does my brother or sister in the pews. I am called to be a go-between, but a different sort than Aaron. Because we can see Christ clearly after the fact. And so my priesthood is derivative from his. And it points back to him and it points up to him. So the role of go-between continues. Because it's not that you don't need other priestly figures. You do. That's why God gives you the church. But Jesus alone is the priest who brought you near to God. And is always over you. You can deal with him directly You don't need a go-between to mediate in a way that would suggest that you have no access on your own. This is no longer that training wheels time for the people of God that included props like Urim and Thuman. So priests bring the people to God. They don't play God to the people. And by the way, that's a sure sign of bad spiritual leadership if you're made to feel that you really can't know God's will or or see God rightly without a certain person's day-by-day serving as your go-between, that's an abuse of authority. So if you feel like you just couldn't function in the faith without the help of a certain pastor or internet teacher or mentor or parent or some other Christian whose experience and insight you always defer to, I want to tell you that's dangerous. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. He doesn't play hard to get. He doesn't speak in a secret code that only the most mature can understand. And every Christian has God's word. It is infinitely deep, but it doesn't lack clarity, even for a brand new believer. So yes, you do need your brothers and sisters. We are wiser together. Our faith is stronger together. But you don't need just one and always the same particular brother or sister. That's not a gift from God. That's creepy. Now, we're already merging into our last point for today, which is that we are a priestly people. We are a priestly people. Yes, we have priestly church leaders, but they don't have exclusive access the same way that Aaron did. We are all a priestly people. And this was God's vision for the people way back at, even at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.6 says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now through Christ, the true priest, that vision has been fulfilled. So First Peter quotes Exodus to say, We're a kingdom of priests so that we might proclaim the excellencies of his name. Hebrews says that like priests, we're to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Romans 12 says that we're to present our own bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship as we're not conformed to this world, but instead are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Revelation worships Christ, saying, "'Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation.'" To what end? "'And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God.'" And 1 John 2.20 says that all true Christians have been anointed by the Holy One. So Aaron and his sons, they were sprinkled with blood and anointed with oil. If you are in Christ, you are marked by blood and anointed with the Spirit. Aaron and his sons had to eat of the ordination ram and the bread, and only the priests could eat of it. Well, in a few minutes, we will feast by faith on the ram of our ordination. As Jesus called himself the bread of life and told his disciples, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's setting us all apart for his service. So then, priestly people, how do we get about our sacred work? What do we do? Well, we tend to the lampstand and to the incense. How do you let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify God? Do you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Do we add oil to the the lamps in our midst so that our church stays bright? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Are you tending to the lampstand of his word and his presence or are you too busy blending in? And then tending to the incense, the prayers, the humble adoration that waft up before his throne. Have we been diligent there as Aaron and his sons had to be diligent in the holy place? Or are we on more of a, if I'm feeling it, schedule? You are a priest. You were put here. You were given this honor for this purpose, to worship with your whole life and to intercede for a broken world. You have a priestly calling in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home, in this church. We talked about this yesterday at the men's breakfast, how there, there is no secular workplace. For a Christian, everything is sacred. You have a sacred calling at your job. You have a sacred calling in your home. and You have a sacred calling to minister to each other in the context of this local congregation. So what names are written on your shoulders and over your hearts? Who are you regularly bearing before the presence of the Lord in prayer? Because if you're not representing God to anyone and you're not representing anyone to God, then you're not functioning as a priest. And I want to speak specifically here to the husbands and the fathers. You rightfully have the role of high priest in your home, but if you're not praying regularly for your wives and your kids, then you're failing them. So it's time to take up your ordination as priest of your family and be consecrated to that task. So what concrete steps are you going to act on this week to fulfill your calling as a priestly prayer leader and pointer to the priest? And as we represent God to our families and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, what do others need most from us as priestly figures in their lives? what they need most is our own personal holiness. They need to see through us what God is like. And when you sin, which you will, they need to see your repentance and how the sacrifice of Christ is applied first to you before you try to lead them in embracing it for themselves. And as you shine the light of his presence and you pray for those whose, whose name you bear on your shoulders and over your hearts, Sometimes it's going to feel like nothing is changing. But don't give up. Because this priestly service in the footsteps of Christ is sure to be fruitful. Because it's not based on your own merit, on your own effort. It's based on the perfect priesthood of Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice. So, there are no more sacrifices for sin. But we... As the priesthood of all believers, we do still make thanksgiving offerings just like the priests of old. And and, uh, just like Christ's sacrifice for sin, it involves his whole self. So also our priestly service involves our whole selves in thankful response to having been brought near to God. So the Apostle Paul says things like, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... I am glad and rejoice with you all. And that's the attitude that we can have as we seek to represent God to each other and represent each other before God. What's the goal of our priesthood? We see that in chapter 29, verses 45 to 46. Our purpose is to be used by God to usher our brothers and sisters into his presence forever. We're all needed in the lives of each other. Now, one day the job of the priestly people will be complete because we'll all be in his presence forever. So there won't be any more need for outsiders to see the glory and the beauty of God. There won't be any need for the guilty ones to be led to the high priest's final sacrifice to bring them to God for the first time. There will be no more forgetful and hurting Christians who need to be pointed back to the priest again and again. But until that day, we take our priestly duty seriously, soberly, we rejoice, and we tremble at the awe and the glory of it all. So Lord, we ask that you would give us courage for this task. It is a high calling, Lord. Uh, we confess that we have not we have not represented you as we ought to in this world, and we confess that we have not. Represented those in our lives before you as we ought to have in this world So we ask for greater grace And lord as we approach this meal Of the lord's supper We do Look at it uh, in a unique way not only As a remembrance of our salvation But a remembrance of our commissioning To your ministry Lord as we reflect On your all-sufficient sacrifice, we ask that you would further empower us to represent you as faithful priests in this world. In Christ's name, amen.